0: welcome to Friday Critical Care Curriculum. I'm happy to have you guys here today. Um, so we're fortunate enough to have Dr. Sammy Zachariah here with us today. Um, Sammy is actually over at Johns Hopkins. So he did his fellowship in cardiology here before going to UC San Francisco to finish his critical care training. He now works at Johns Hopkins doing mostly cardiac critical care. He's going to be talking us, to us today about ventricular arrhythmias in critically ill patients. Sammy, it's so nice to meet you. Thanks for having you here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I, this is a fun talk for me because um it was actually um I was asked by the Society of care Medicine to give this talk for their board review course. And I asked them, why are you asking me to give this talk? I thought they'd want an electrophysiologist giving it or somebody like an EP. And they said, no, 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 we want to we want somebody um who is not an electrophysiologist to give this talk so you could talk to us like people. And so once I understood that, I was like, okay, fine, I'll do this. Um and so I'm happy to share um some of my thoughts from that talk and just a little bit of other stuff that I added on too. I don't have any disclosures. There's no money to be made in particular arrhythmias and critical care. Um, and then so the objectives behind this talk is basically spend a little bit of time learning about the epidemiology and significance of these arrhythmias in the ICU environment. Um, I want to spend a fair amount of time talking about how to diagnose these things, um, then let's go to etiologies and talk about acute therapies. Um, so. I, I, don't, I don't need to tell you that if you have ventricular arrhythmia in the ICU, it's bad. It actually, for, ventri- for supraventricular arrhythmias, it's much more common. They're about 30% of patients, depending on the studies. But for ventricular arrhythmias, it's about 2.2% of ICU patients, a little less in surgical ICUs, a little bit more in cardiac ICUs. Um, but if you have it anywhere, it's bad. And it's associated with a mortality rate of, of, that's over 50%. So you don't wanna have one of these things. Um, and so, like, when I see a patient in general, when I see a patient with a ventricular arrhythmia, I, I, the first question I ask is shock present, because if it is, um, you know very well that we have to perform ACLS and, or cardioversion in those patients. Um, even so, if there's hypotension. But if you have hypotension or evidence of cardiac ischemia, you want to treat these patients urgently, figure out the underlying cause, um, uh, and then treat the arrhythmia quickly. Um, um, then, like, you want to figure out what's causing this arrhythmia and the reason why is although you shouldn't delay treatment to try, try to figure out what the cause of the arrhythmia is but, but like acute treatment of ventricular arrhythmia will work in the short term but it won't prevent a reoccurrence um, unless you treat the underlying issue and so what I did here was I blocked out the things that I think are most likely to, to cause an arrhythmia so electrolytes are notorious for doing this obviously if you have heart disease or cardiac ischemia it could do this Cardiomyopathy is pre-existing cardiomyopathies it can do this as well or new ones in um, the surgical ISUs, CVCQ, trauma, et cetera, um, mechanical irritation either from surgery, central lines, tamponade, et cetera, could do this. Um, and toxins and medications are a frequent occurrence in our patient populations as well. Um, but all the list is here for you, for your uh, reference. So let's go over a case presentation. This is a 52-year-old gentleman. Um, he had recent GI bleeding, COPD, CAD, heart failure, comes in with pneumonia and ARDS, uh, heart rate on telemetry noted to be 160. Basically his vital signs are not great. He doesn't look great. Um is a little bit elevated. Lactate's three, hemoglobin's terrible. Um, and this is his ECG. Um, I don't want to focus too much on this ECG, just a little placeholder, but this is obviously, uh, because it's a talk on VT, it's VT. Um, so just, you know, this is for the fellows. Let's just, so we can be on the same page. Um, to diagnose VT, the QRS complex has to be wide, so it has to be greater than three small boxes, 120 milliseconds, and the rate has to be fast. Um, if it's neither one of these two, then it's not VT. Um, and then what you want to differentiate is between either ventricular tachycardia, in other words, it's originating in the ventricle, or if it's a ventricular tachycardia with a wide QRS complex. So in other words, the, the, it's coming from the, uh, somewhere either in the AV node and it's going down, um, and then whatever there's some reason it's delaying depolarization in the ventricle, and that's why you have a QRS complex. Um, but in general, like when you when you're, you in the ICU environment, uh, especially if the patient's unstable, if it's wide and fast, and the patient's hypertensive, you don't care if the patient has a supraventricular tachycardia or if it's VT, because you treat it the same way. You treat it as if it's VT, and then you want to spend some time later to figure out the diagnosis. Conversely, if the patient is stable, that does not mean that they have a supraventricular tachycardia. Um, there's plenty of patients that walk around with VT, and they could tolerate it for hours before they collapse. So just because a patient's stable does not mean the patient does not have VT. The other thing is, is, is in general, most people with, sorry, most, most arrhythmias, wide complex tachycardia, a, um, are VT in general. So uh, it's greater than 95% chance if a patient has a known history of heart disease. And if you're an older adult, and I'm putting this in quotations, because anyone over the age of 35 is an 85% chance that a wide complex tachycardia is VT. So, when in doubt, always treat as VT, um, and then spend late, time later to figure out the diagnosis. Um, but again, I want to reiterate, you want to figure out why the patient's having this wide complex tachycardia, because, or if it is truly VT, because it's, it, could, it could make a difference in how you prevent reoccurrences. So, there's a million criteria for diagnosing VT. Um, you could use Brugada's criteria. You could use a bunch of other things. But for my purposes as a critical care cardiologist, um, I kind of came up with this modified way of diagnosing VTs. It comes from um, Marriott's Practical ECG book, uh, which is a very readable book, and I made some little modifications based on other other things. And, and what I like to call it is a scan and zoom. So... Um, the scan is, is there's four things. You want to scan to look for AV dissociation, capture beats, fusion beats, and extreme axis deviation. Um, and then when you zoom, you're focusing more on the precordial leads, and you will look for precordial concordance, a wide RS interval, a new wide QRS complex, or an atypical right or left bundle branch block pattern. Um, and then for things that favor VT and a bundle branch block pattern, it's listed on the right portion of the slide. I just went over a lot of stuff very quickly, so um, I will go over each one of these things in, um, next. So here's a um, let's talk, let's look at this ECG. This is um, um, uh, is there evidence of VT here? I'll let you will let you folks look take a look at it and then um, and then tell you what I think. Um, so we're scanning. What's the first thing we scan for? We scan for AV dissociation, and so in this case. This patient does have it. Um, it's very helpful to look in a rhythm strip. And here you can see these little ditzels. Uh, let me see if I can annotate it. I can't annotate. Um, all right, so never mind. Uh, I, I can't annotate, but, um, but you can see where the arrows are. Um, you can see sometimes a little ditzel inside a T wave or um, be, before in the middle between two RR complexes um, and showing AV dissociation. So AV dissociation is tricky. It's the first criteria because if it's present, it has 100% specificity for being VT. You cannot have uh, AV dissociation and not have two different rhythms. One has to be supraventricular. So the, si- the P waves are, are beating at a certain, the atria are beating at a certain rate. And then the ventricles are not beating at that same rate. They're being completely different. And that's because there's something intrinsic going on in the ventricle. So by, when you have AV dissociation, uh, uh, you must have a ventricular rhythm. Um, The problem with it is, in my eyes, I've seen some studies saying 50% of ECGs with with wide complex tachycardias have AV dissociation. I I don't see that when I'm looking at an ECG, and I find it's only present in about 20% of patients. Um, So, um, you know, in that case, in that ECG that I just showed you is VT. Here's another example of it. Um, um, Here, you could see um, in the rhythm strips, again, best place to look for it, you could see these little... P waves that are intermittently in there, and if you march them out, you'll notice that they're consistently um, going at a rate different than the ventricles. So these are path, these are diagnostic of VT. There's nothing else that can be. All right, so that's the first criteria. So the first criteria, that, and and you know when you when you get it, association, you should be, then you are done. It's VT. The second one is is if it's ca- is capture or fusion beats, and here's an example of it. So this is in a patient. This is actually a 70-year-old man. He had um, an exploratory—not not exploratory. He had a gastric uh, can, cancer, which required um, uh, partial gastrectomy and a distal esophagectomy. While he's in the surgical ICU, he develops this rhythm here, and we get a call about it, and then and they ask us what this uh, what this what's this arrhythmia? So you know this is a VT talk. So. Um, and we know, but it's not any of associations. This, this patient had capture and fusion beats. And so what a capture and a fusion beat are, um, so let's go over the first one. So uh, here, look at lead V1 or lead 2, any one of the rhythm strips, or V5 for that matter. The first beat is a wide complex beat. It looks ventricular origin. Same thing for the second beat. Same thing for the third beat. The fourth one, though, looks different. In, in V1, it looks relatively narrow. In lead 2, it's a different axis. and In lead V5, it's a little bit narrower. Um, and so what that is, is basically a normal beat that's interspersed among the VT beats. And all that's going on is you have VT, you have you have ventricular contraction, and then a normal beat comes in, breaks through, and then uh, it, it prevents the VT from happening. And then in very next beat, the VT comes up in again. That is path that's diagnostic of VT. There's nothing else that could be. Um, and it's present in about 30% of patients. So in this case, this patient had, Um, after the capture beat, a few beats later in the dotted line, is a a beat that looks kind of like a capture beat and kind of like a VT beat. So when you see that, that's called a fusion beat. Basically, it's a combination of two beats. And so that's another thing that's pathognomonic of VT. Um, So this patient has VT. Now, I know some people might nitpick on this ECG because it's a relatively smaller, uh, slower rate. Um, the rate's a little like around 110 or so. And so some people say, oh, this might be an accelerated ventricular rhythm or so. But in this patient's case, this was VTAC. Um, he went to the cath lab because he had ST elevations on the subsequent ECG. Um, it turned out he had proxy LED occlusion. Um, after, after getting cardiac catheterization, he moved up to the cardiac intensive care unit, did fine for a while, um, uh, but then developed pneumonia and had, had to be traced. All right there's an example i mentioned AIVR. this is an example of it here um, what this is is basically you see ventricular beats and then you see the same thing of fusion beats and capture beats just like the previous one the only difference is this is a much slower rate and so when you see that um, when you see a ventricular uh, rhythm that's a slower than 100 or 120 that's called accelerated ventricular rhythm and that is not a reentry rhythm it is a uh, it is a, um, it's due to enhanced automaticity. And that often happens when the, when you have reperfusion after PCI or after thrombolytics. Um, so if you see this in a patient who just got PCI or just had thrombolysis or whatever, um, then you should celebrate because you know that part of their heart is now reperfused. So it's basically, it's a happy a reaction by the, uh, uh, the myocardium that's getting um, uh, oxygen again. Um, and this usually goes away within a few hours of, uh, of uh, presentation, and then the patient goes back with the sinus rhythm. Oh, by the way, feel free to interrupt me if you have any questions. I don't see a chat. I do see chat. So I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, I'll monitor the chat, and I'll have happy to answer any questions. All right, so we went over two criteria so far. We went over the first one, which is AV dissociation. The second one of the scan criteria is, is, is capture. Third is fusion beats. So there's one more left. And this is it. Um, In this case, um, you're scanning the whole ECG. I I don't see any evidence of AV dissociation. I don't see any capture or fusion beats. But then I do see that the patient has extreme axis deviation. And so what that means is uh, normally you have a, um, uh, your axis is leftward and inferior. But in a patient who has a a, a arrhythmia coming from ventricular origin, um, you'll have it going from apex to the to the base of the heart, and so it'll be rightward and superior. I and mean, that's what happened in this case, and that makes, makes you think it's more of a, a ventricular in origin. There's a big caveat to this, though, um, and this patient has it. You have to have an initial R wave. So if you see a Q wave before the R wave in, in the QRS complex, then it's not diagnostic of VT, and so then you have to use other criteria to diagnose it. Um, um, so um so in this case this patient has extreme axis deviation with initial r wave so we went over all the um scan criteria so just to review them again it's, it's um, av dissociation um, capture complexes fusion complexes and then um extreme axis deviation and the combination of those criteria should capture about half of all bts so then after you do that, then if scan's not working, what do you do? You zoom. So you zoom to the precordial leaves. And the first criteria for that is precordial concordance. And what that means is that all the leaves are face the same direction. Um, so you remember um, in a normal ECG, uh, V1, V1 is, so I'm, I'm pointing out from V1 from my chest here. Uh, so V1's on the right side of the chest, right next to the sternum, and it points out in this direction. And then V6 is, le- is leftward and uh, near the apex of the heart. In, in, in normal conduction, V1 tends to be negative because if it's rightward and superior, it goes away from the dominant vector, which is leftward and inferior. V6 is usually positive. But when all of them are in the same direction, the only way that's possible is if the the, the arrhythmia is coming from the ventricle. This is an example of it. It's called, uh, in this case, this is positive precordial concordance. So here's the baseline. um, And then in V1, it's positive. In V2, it's positive. In V3, it's positive. V4, V5, and V6, they're all going the same direction. They're all going upward. So when you see that, it must be coming from the ventricle. And this, this sensitivity, specificity is greater than like 98%, so something sky high. This is an example of negative precordial concordance. So this is a left. This is a, sorry, it's, it's negative. So um, look how in V1, V2, V3, V4, V5, V6, all of them the predominant vector is negative. So what that means is coming somewhere from the cardiac apex um, and pushing up um, away from uh, the, uh, the away from the uh, the leads. Any questions on this uh, for, for pre-coital concordance? If it, feel free to put it in the chat, or if that made sense or not. Okay, I'll move on. So we went over scan. We've gone over the first uh, uh, zoom criteria. Let's go over the next one. So the next one is looking at a wide RS interval. Um, and this one, to me, I feel like you have to more memorize it, what the criteria is, where the other ones are a little bit more intuitive. But basically what you're looking at is you're looking at any of the three cordial leads, and you want to see how long is the distance from the start of the R wave to the nadir of the S wave. So I, I drew an arrow over here. where pointing to where those are, and it has to be greater than 100 milliseconds. And the reason why that's important is because even it, in... in um, uh, in patients with a like a bundle branch block, so it's not VT, that distance is, is narrow. But in patients with VT, where it's going through myocardium, it takes forever from the start of the R wave to the peak uh, uh, voltage. Um, so you look basically at any precordial lead, and you want to see from the beginning to the end: is it almost three boxes in length? If it is, then it's with VT. The next criteria is 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 a wide QRS complex, and so this is trickier because it depends on whether the patient has a right bundle wrench pattern or a left bundle wrench pattern. Um, so um, in this case, this patient has a right bundle wrench pattern. And the only reason why you know that is you look at V1 and it's positive. It looks more like a rabbit ears pattern. Um, so if that's wider than 140 milliseconds, more consistent with, with the VT. Um, the same thing if you look at V6, it's wider than 100, 140 milliseconds. There's a big asterisk with this, um, and that's why I put it up in this thing, is that um, the big caveat to this is if a patient already has a pre-existing bundle branch block. You can't use this criteria because they have a bundle branch block. So it's not helpful to know what the baseline ECG looks like. And this is an example of a left bundle branch pattern where it's VT and you have a super wide QRS complex um, and it's just more consistent with VT. So we've gone over all the scan criteria. It's um, For scanning, it's um, AV dissociation, captured beats, f- uh, fusion beats, extreme axis deviation. We've gone over several of the zoom criteria. The first one is precordial concordance, um, RS, wide RS interval, wide QRS interval. So let's we'll go over the last one. And I think this is actually what electrophysiologists tend to use most often. And that is, they look at the ECG and they say, does this look like a typical right bundle or, or left bundle or not? If it's not a typical one of these things, then it's VT. Look at this example here. This doesn't look like your average rabbit-eared right bundle. And certainly it doesn't look like it in V6 either. So this is more consistent with VT. Here's another, well, this is just another example of what a right bundle should look like. This is a right bundle here. This is a typical right bundle. And compare that to this. They look nothing alike. And so when you, say, when you see a wide complex tachycardia, and it doesn't look like a typical right bundle or left bundle, then it's just VT. And I feel like in clinical practice, this is one of the most used zoom criteria beyond precorial concordance. Um, just as a little reminder, this is what a left bundle looks like. All right, so we've gone over these criteria. Um, we've gone over this, the, the scan zoom criteria, and I just want to point out, I put them in this particular order because they're all in order of specificity and sensitivity. Um, so um, basically, once you fulfill a criteria, you stop. If you have AV association, you don't need to go on anything else. If you have capture and fusion beats, you don't need to go look for extreme X deviation. Um, so that's why they're in this particular order, because they're in order of specificity. All right. So what if no scan and zoom criteria are present? So there's still two possibilities. The rhythm still might be VT, and in fact, about five to eight percent of all Wide complex tachycardias that do not have any scan or zoom criteria are still VT. And then, but, but the majority of them tend to be SVTs with quad QRS complex. And so there's two, con- two cases where that is happens. It could either be due to a preexisting bundle branch block or it could be due to a rate related bundle branch block. So here's an example of this. This is a 54 year old gentleman has COPD and respiratory failure and his ECG looks like this. Is this VT? So in the interest of time, I'm gonna tell you that there's no scanner zoom criteria present. I don't see anything, consistent so maybe dissociation or capture or fusion beats. There's a little bit of um, artifact in lead two toward the end of it, but that's not a QRS complex. Um, there's no extreme axis deviation. Um, the QRS complexes, they look like, if you look at V1, it looks like a typical rabbit ears. And if you look at V6 and lead one, it looks like a, a typical right bundle branch block appearance. And so when you see that, then you're like, okay, well, it could be VT, it could be SVT. Um, in this case, this patient was treated with amiodarone, um, so it slowed the rhythm down. <laughs> uh, it slowed the, uh, the rhythm down, and you could start seeing um, sawtooth patterns, especially notable in lead 3, ABF, and lead 2. And then within a few minutes later, it's much more obvious this is atrial flutter with a preexisting um. Uh, pre-existing uh, right bundle branch block. Um, this is a, another ECG. This is a 64-year-old woman. She's had a history of seizures. Um, comes in with altered mental status, and then here's her wide complex tachycardia. Um, so again, no scanner zoom criteria. So there's no evidence of um, AV dissociation, capture, fusion beats, no QRS deviation. Um, there's, if you look at the, the zoom criteria, there's no precordial concordance. If you look at V1, how it's so negative, V6 is so positive. RS criteria and QRS complexes are rather wide, but it's not super wide. Um, and then the, uh, uh, and you don't know if the patient has a pre-existing bundle branch block, and it looks like a typical right bundle and left bundle. Um, uh, so uh, in this case, this patient also got amiodarone. Um and uh they they um they didn't do much. Um basically it slowed the heart rate down a little bit and then I pointed out that with the arrows that you can start seeing P waves that so look like a long RP tachycardia So P waves coming in toward the latter half of this strip, and then a few minutes later this is what you see. So basically what this patient has um is uh is sinus tach. Um just to just to uh are you looking at this this ECG? This one or this one? Which one? This one or this one? Uh, I got a message from, I guess, David. Callman. David, can you unmute yourself? Uh, the one you have on the screen right now. This one? What do you mean? Do you mean by seeing, tell me what you're seeing. that. Like it looks a, like on maybe the like the fifth and sixth and seventh beats, those look very different from the first couple. That is a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) um, I remember someone asked me about this before and I didn't have a very good answer for them before. And maybe this is why this patient ended up getting amiodarone um, but you bring up a valid, valid point. That why is the QRS complex changing? It's not a fusion beat or capture beat because it's the same rate as the uh, the rest of the strip. It's a little. I don't think it's that much faster or slower than the later beats. You could say it is a rate-related left bundle, but the whole thing is left bundle. So it's so it's hard to say if this is VT or not. Um, I mean, there are some. Less common forms of VT like reciprocating ventricular tachycardias that could do this. Um, in my personal opinion, I still think it's sinus tach. I, don't- I would love to hear what people think um, is on there. Um, I got a message. Do you want to? Do you want to say something, uh, Karn? You don't have to. All right. I guess he's not on. Um, all right, so we'll we'll just leave it there. I, those are my thoughts on it, but I don't know if anyone else has wanted to add their input. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so I don't know. So that's probably one of the explanations why the patient ended up getting amiodarone. But you bring up a valid point. All right, so here is this. So this is a, and in this case, whatever the amiodarone did, it didn't change the rhythm, except in V five where it looks a little bit different from the beginning of it, and then it looks more like sinus type. All right, good catch. 80-year-old woman with hypercapnic breast failure and pneumonia, and she comes in. In this case, this is a patient with um, uh, almost a preexisting right bundle branch block. Um, this patient, let me go back to this a little bit before I go. Um, notice how it looks like a typical right bundle branch block here. Um, and she got amiodarum because we wasn't able to tell and weren't sure. And this is what ended up happening. And what's tricky about this is that when the RR interval starts widening, the QRS complex narrows. And that happens when you have a rate-related bundle branch block. Um, it's often seen uh, with the right bundle. Um, and that's because the right bundle has a longer refractory period than the left bundle. And it's called Ashman's phenomenon when it occurs with like, atrial arrhythmias, like atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. And that's what happened with this patient here. So it's a rate-related right bundle branch block. If you see this, it typically occurs with higher heart rates like 140s, 140, 150. Um, And um, it's it's almost always associated with right bundle branch block. If if you see a rate-related left bundle branch block, I've only seen it a few times, um, that is much more of a pathologic phenomenon. And it's usually associated with conduction system disease elsewhere. Uh, And so those patients may need more likely to get a pacemaker in the years to come. All right, so we've gone over all the scan and zoom criteria. We've gone over a couple cases where the patient um, may have had SVT versus VT, although we'll give a caveat to the one, the patient with the the, the abnormality and need V5. Um, I wanna give a few more caveats. Um, Scan and zoom criteria can be positive when you have uh, abnormalities in electrolytes and toxins uh, when there's been pacing or accessory pathways. And in fact, the QRS complexes could be super wide in these situations. And that's why it's important even in the ICU setting is to get a good history because if you know the patient took, is, took a bunch of uh, toxic medications, that could help to dif- tell you if um, um, what what the etiology of arrhythmia is and how you should treat it. Um, and it's even trickier because you, you don't, it, you want to treat the underlying issue, but you can't tell if it's SVT or SVT. And so in those situations, it's also important to treat it just as if it's VT. Um, so here's an example of this. So this is this VT. I mean, you see several scan and zoom criteria, right? Look in, um, uh, look how the, um, the, there's extreme axis deviation. There's a capture beat in the middle of, of the strip. Um, there's a wide QRS complex. Um, so there's several criteria for it. Um, but what makes it obvious, and this should be, and I gave an obvious example here, this is, this is not VT, this is actually a pacemaker immediate tachycardia, and you can see that in in many leads, but lead V4 in particular, where you see a pacer spike in front of this. Now, this is a ventricular arrhythmia, right, because it's pacing the ventricle, but it's not V ventricular tachycardia, it's basically just a phenomenal t- pacemaker. In this case, this was a runaway pacemaker. Um, and so we have to put a magnet on it to stop it from beating at 120 beats per minute and to make it beat at 60 beats uh, per minute before it got fixed. Um, the caveat to that is that you could have Y complex tachycardias and VT in patients with pacemakers. This is an example of it here. Um, look here where you see these pacemaker spikes kind of firing intermittently um, and not really, they're not really capturing anything after that. Um, that's because the patient has VT, but in the early portion of this trip, the pacemaker was just firing away before it recognized that this is a, uh, um, a malignant arrhythmia. All right, here's a 42-year-old uh, uptoned man, has end-stage renal disease and intermittent dialysis. Is this VT? Uh, I know all of you have taken care of patients similar to this. This is um, hyperkalemia-induced Y-complex tachycardia. Wide complex tachycardia. So this is probably not of an ventricular origin. It's just probably because the QRS complex widens with with um, hyperkalemia because um, hyperkalemia um, it favors repolarization and it prevents depolarization. So it basically widens the QRS complex a lot. Um, And this in this case, this patient's uh, potassium is 8.2, and then this is after dialysis where it thinned out. Um, Here's a 45-year-old woman. Um, had atrial fibrillation, she's on flecainide, she had severe dyspnea and palpitations. And the question is, is this VT? Um, and um, you can't say for sure because the flecainide caused a widening of the curious complex and flecainide causes widening of curious complex even more at faster heart rates. So it could have been like an atrial flutter or atrial fibrillation with, with, a, with a, a, you know, flecainide induced widening of the curious complex or it could have been VT. But in either case, in her case, she basically um, was treated to slow her heart rate down. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and this is what her ECG looked like a few, a few days later. All right, so this is a 25-year-old gentleman at sudden onset palpitations, dyspnea, and presyncope. Um, and so the question for this one is, is this VT. So, um, and here, I don't see any like AV um, association or it's hard for me to take a look at that. Um, I don't see any capture or fusion beats and there's no extreme axis deviation. In fact, in the AVR it's negative initially. Um, so it's, um, don't see any scan criteria. So then zoom criteria, there is a lot of positivity here, uh, positive criteria here. So there's no pre-concordance but the QRS complexes are super wide um, and um, it may or may not look like a typical bundle branch flop. Um, so I, I, I thought this is more like BT, but it turned out to be, and this patient actually ended up getting cardioverted and it turned out the patient had accessory pathways. So when you have an accessory pathway, basically a bundle of Kemp, um, uh you could have any type of uh, electrical abnormality under the sun. So the QRS complexes could look like anything and they're, and they're always wide. And so it, it's, you can't diagnose BT in, in these patients. Um, it, you just have to say it's a wide complex tachycardia. So in his case, he got ablated really fine. All right. So let's go to this gentleman. This is an old ECG, and uh, it's because I've never seen it personally. This is a 27-year-old man with palpitations, dyspnea, and hypotension. Hypotension, and um, I'm changing around a little bit. It's not monomorphic VT. It's a polymorphic VT here, and the reason why you. Know, it's it, what we're, why we're wondering if it's polymorphic VT is because um, the rates are a little bit different, and there's a little bit different morphology the QRS complexes. Um, there's a lot of scan and zoom criteria here. There's precordial concordance. Notice that lead V1 through V6, they're all positive, so that's significant for VT. Uh, the QRS complexes are wide, at least for most beats. Um, and it doesn't look like a typical bundle branch block pattern. So this patient, though, they suspected maybe something is up. Maybe there's a little bit of a slurred delta wave. And so what this um, patient ha- ended up having was um, uh, afib, atrial fibrillation with, with um, uh, a bypass pathway. And so the treatment for this is, is to block that bypass track. You don't want to block the AV node. And so you you want to treat it with procainamide. That's a treatment of choice. So let me just talk a little bit more about this. So this, the reason why this is an old ECG and why I haven't seen it in person is because most patients um, who have bypass tracts and are symptomatic with it get ablated early. So as a fetus, um, the, there's a, a non-conduction, um, like a fibrotic layer that develops between the atria and the ventricles, not allowing electrical um, con- conduction to occur between the top chambers and the bottom chambers of the heart, except the AV node. Um, but it takes time for that to form. So uh, before that fibrotic layer helps, there's a lot of normal cardiac tissue that conducts um, electricity down to the ventricles. And so if you do an EP study on, on a, a newborn, you'll see several bypass tracts. And as as, as as you grow up, these bypass tracts close and they have no clinical significance. But in some patients, these lead to symptoms and they lead usually to a supraventricular tachycardia where you see um, AV reciprocating tachycardia. Um, and w- eventually with time um, or with like other cardiac abnormalities, you might have um, atrial fibrillation. And when that happens, that is, um, is life-threatening and the patient can die because um, all those impulses get conducted down the bundle of Kent and the ventricular rate goes sky high. So the way to treat that is to favor the AV node, because the AV node tends to slow down conduction if it's super fast, Um, basically blocks, blanky blocks. right? And so um, you want to block the uh, bundle of Kent with procainamide. You do not want to give anything as slow as the AV node, because then all that does just favors conduction down the bundle of Kent. so this will be on emergency medicine boards, internal medicine boards, and cardiology boards. And I'm not, I may, be, may or may not on clinical care boards, but the treatment of choice is procainamide. And this patient, in his case, he was admitted to into the ICU um, and then had um, uh, got, got procainamide. And this is what his rhythm turned out afterwards. So he's still in AFib, but um, he was slowed down afterwards. He got ablated and did fine. Here's another example that was in the New England Journal a few months ago. This is a, I don't know how old he was, but he was a younger male um, who uh, um, was getting a blood draw and then developed a, 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 a irregular tachycardia. Um, this just shows you delta waves at a fast heart rate. Um, and then uh, he was treated with procainamide and then when he was back in sinus rhythm you can see these obvious delta waves. And again, this patient got um, ablated, the bundle can ablated and did fine. All right, so let's go on the next scenario. We've gone over a lot. We've gone over the criteria for VT. We've gone over um, some conditions where it may not be VT that confuse the picture. Um, Then we started going to the polymorphic uh, VTs. So we've gone over AFib with uh, bypass track right and now we're going to another case this five-year-old woman has chronic pain um, she uses opioids presented with pneumonia um, and altered mental status and the question is Is this polymorphic vt um and, and it is it's uh, you see basically it's torsades you have um, a wide complex tachycardia it basically the QRS complex kind of changes access as you go through it um and it's basically uh uh, consistent with that, but to have polymorphic sorry to have torsades, you you can't just have polymorphic VT. You also have to have a long QT interval prior to torsades. So here's an example of it where the QT interval is long on this telemetry strip, and then the patient um, has a PVC inside um, while the in the T wave, and then they go off to the races. Um, and that is different though from polymorphic ventricular tachycardia that occurs with no history of prior long QT interval. If you don't have that, then that's due to myocardial ischemia, and that's almost always associated with an acute MI, and those patients should go emergently to cardiac cath lab, and you don't call those patients polymorphic VT. In this case, though, for this woman, um, she had the long QT interval beforehand, and so um, this was was, called torsades. There are 10 million reasons for uh, QT prolongation and uh, result in increase in torsades rates. Um, it often happens in patients with history of heart disease because if you have that, you're more likely to get um, arrhythmias, including this one. It could be due to intrinsic electrophysiologic causes like um, it's more likely to occur at slow heart rates when you have um, congenital long QT syndrome, et cetera. It's notorious with electrolyte disorders, all the hypos like hypokalemia, hypomag, hypocalcemia, hypothermia, um, it, it's notorious with medications. You know, there's like two websites that ha- list all of them, um, like antiarrhythmics, antifungal agents and antibiotics, antipsychotics, methadone. Um, some illicit drugs could do this as well. Um, and then interestingly enough, uh, like strokes could do this. So if you have subarachnoid hemorrhages um, or other abnormalities, you're, you're more predisposed to having a long QT interval. And that's just due to increased uh, power, uh, sorry, alterations in sympathetic and parasympathetic tone. Um, all right, so next patient, this is a 55-year-old man with chest pain and shortness of breath. Oh, this is a real ECG, by the way. Um, and so you see him in sinus rhythm initially, and then he goes into ventricular fibrillation midway through the strip. Um, luckily, they, fin- they did finish the electrocardiogram, but they went recognized it pretty quickly. They, this patient got shocked, um, did well, got an emergent cardiac catheterization, did fine. Um, afterwards, but this is ventricular fibrillation. So um, you know, I don't need to tell you that you have to perform ACLS and defibrillate these patients. Um, This is another example. This was published in the New England Journal a few months ago as well. Um, Obviously you don't necessarily need to diagnose ventricular tachycardia this way, but but ventricular fibrillation this way, but notice in this tracing in the ECG tracings on top you see um, uh, uh, course activity, so that's fibrillation. The arterial line is essentially flat, also consistent with ventricle fibrillation. But look at the CVP tracing. The atria are still conducting here. They're still, still contracting because you see A-waves um, where the asterisks are. So this patient still had an A-wave on their CVP tracing. But in the PA tracing, they, they were flat just because the right ventricle is fibrillating just as much as the left ventricle. Just kind of interesting uh, finding. All right, so just to review the management behind all this, um, the, uh, yeah, if a patient's unstable, you obviously want to cardiovert them form ACLS. Certainly, if they're in ventricular fibrillation, you're going to be doing that. But when you tachycardia, attack you have time to think of antiarrhythmics. If stable, you have more time to think about what the etiology is and how to treat it. Um, um, but ultimately, you want to de- determine and treat the underlying cause. Um, some patients you want to consider an EP study and ablation, depending on what the etiology of it. And some patients you want to consider implantable cardioverter or defibrillator. Um, I want to spend this slide or talk a few minutes about this slide. Um, I feel like when I was a cardiology fellow at Maryland, my go-to drug was, it probably still is for, um, for fellows um, and for residents, is amiodarone. Um, and, and it's certainly a great drug. It's, it's useful for patients who are hemodynamically unstable. It's certainly in the, in the AHA ACLS guidelines. Um, for unstable patients, you want to give 150 milligrams over 10 minutes, and then, but for a code dose, you give 300 milligram bolus. The reason why you don't give boluses to patients who have a pulse is that they're more likely to become hypotensive with the bolus therapy, so that's why we don't do that. Um, after you give them the initial bolus, whether it's 150 or 300, then you continue an IV infusion over next 24 hours and you're more than welcome to bolster them again if you feel like you have a lot of arrhythmias the second choice medication for ventricular tachycardia should be lidocaine um, and this is a good drug for hemodynamically unstable vt or, or, or a good alternative drug to hemodynamically unstable VT. um it's less favored than amiodarone because it doesn't work as well It certainly doesn't work for non-ischemic VTs, but you could consider using it. And we've had sometimes patients on combination of both these medications on both amiodarone and lidocaine. Um, The other problem is lidocaine often is associated with cardiac toxicity, sorry, with with, uh, systemic toxicity. I've had patients go nuts because of this drug when they became toxic. So you have to check levels relatively frequently and you wanna stop it after a few days. Um, uh, An alternative to lidocaine, but only useful in patients who have hemodynamically stable VT is procainamide. So I didn't know this, but there was a study um, published three years ago um, where it compared procainamide to amiodarone and hemodynamically stable VT was called uh, Procamio. And it, sh- it showed that if you give 10 milligrams per kilogram over 20 minutes and infuse it uh, over the next 24 hours, Um, that it beat the stuffing out of amiodarone. It was associated with fewer adverse cardiac events like hypotension. Um, And it also caused faster pharmacologic termination of stable VT when compared to amiodarone. Um, So now I'm starting to use this drug more often uh, for stable VTs. Uh, If I have time to think about it, um, if if I don't have to rush to treat this VT, I would oftentimes use procanamide. but if the patient's, if, if the patient's unstable or, or coding, then this drug is not useful. Then you really want to focus on amiodarone. Also, it's the treatment of choice for WPW socially with Y-complex tachycardias because it's really good at treating the bundles of chem. Um, so those are your three favorite medications. There are other medications you could use uh, to treat VTs. Uh, metoprolol or other beta blockers can be used, uh, but they're not really good for treating acute VT. They're only good at suppressing future ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation episodes. And that's why we give it to many patients after uh, MIs, after myocardial infarctions. It's not just for favorable cardiac remodeling, it actually prevents arrhythmias in a short period of time. Um, but there's no evidence to support its immediate use in patients with either VT or VFIP, uh, except for this rare type of uh, ventricular tachycardia, which is alpha tract tachycardias. Um, some people also use magnesium uh, for treating ventricular tachycardias. That's essentially useless, except if you have Torsade de point. If you have that, then that's the treatment of choice. And the reason how that works is it shortens the QT interval um, and it basically in, it, it, enhance, it also helps with depolarization. All right, so let's talk about a few special situations. Um, here's a 56 year old gentleman, came in with delirium tremens um, in the emergency department. He was noted to have significant ectopy. He gets transferred to the cardiac ICU because of all the ectopy. Blood pressure, heart rate are on the high side. He is awake, but you know has DT. Um, and this is his first ECG. I find this ECG hard to interpret, but I can tell you there's a whole bunch of ventricular uh, beats here. Um, they're of different morphology as well. And there's probably a long QT interval and in, associated in, with the narrow QRS complexes. Here's the second attempt at the first part of the 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 the, uh, the uh, strip there's um, frequent ventricular beats and they're of different morphologies and then towards the later portion of the strip it's in sinus rhythm but the QT interval is a little bit on the long side and this is the third attempt where the patient's just plain old sinus rhythm uh, a little bit less VT and the QT interval is super long here so this patient had a combination of uh, oh he may have had long QT syndrome um, um, because he had some criteria for it so he had this QTC interval is greater than 500 milliseconds. So it has to be bigger than two big boxes, um, actually two and a half big boxes or something of the nature. Um, and so you could, he may have had that. Um, the other way you could also use this risk score on the right-hand side, diagnosed long QT syndrome, but um, I, not, I don't know how often it's used in the ICU setting, but you could. Um, but many patients aren't diagnosed with long QT syndrome because there's 10 million other causes for QT prolongation. And you have to rule all those out before you can diagnose somebody with long QT syndrome. If you do have long QT syndrome, um, you want to, and this patient ended up after he was stabilized, after he went through the DTs, he ended up still having a a, a long QT interval, so he ended up having, he was diagnosed with this. Um, You want to avoid electrolyte abnormalities, you want to avoid any medications that prolong the QT interval, and you want to manage underlying provoking stressors. Like in this guy, he was a retired um, either a safety officer or a military officer, um, but drank a lot. And so he was strongly encouraged to, um, to stop that. Um, and he did, and he was able to do that successfully, but he couldn't tell having salvage of this anyway. Um, so because of that, he ended up getting treated with a beta blocker, with natalol. Um, if, if it's recurrent, despite um, natalol, you'd consider team, But at that point, you're considering either ICD implantation um, and sympathetic integration. Um, So here's uh, just from the guidelines, Um, I want to focus on top to diagnose if the patient has documented long QT syndrome. Any patient who's had um, cardiac arrest, so VT, VFib, um, they need beta blockers and they should be considered for an ICD. Um, And if they have recurrent shocks, then you need um, additional medications or sympathetic denervation. If you have long QT syndrome, but in general, the QT syndrome is a little bit on the shorter side. You just treat them with a beta blocker. And if you have a longer QT interval and you're symptomatic, you think about a beta blocker um, and then defibrillator. Um, so that's that. Here's another case presentation. This is a 40-year-old man, has no significant past medical history. He comes in with dyspnea and palpitations, um, blood pressure and heart rate stable, but he had diminished breath sounds in his left lower back. Um, diagnosed with m- pneumonia. Um, actually, ended up also being in the cardiac ICU, and the reason why is because of this ECG here. Um, so, this ECG yeah, shows that he's in sinus rhythm, um, but it's not normal, right? So, uh, look at the QRS complexes in the SCL segments, especially in lead V1, V2, V3. You notice that there's a, almost like a uh, um, uh, ST elevations in these leads. You have a right bundle branch block pattern and it's almost like a coved ST segment slope pattern. Um, In V2 and V3, it's more like a saddleback. So this ECG is um, consistent with Brugada pattern. So just to review what Brugada pattern ECGs look like, there's three different types. So type one is diagnostic of Brugada uh, syndrome per se, because these are more high risk patients. These are patients who in lead V1 and looks a little bit elevated. V2, it's more of this downsloping ST elevations. And V3, it's more of a, a saddleback pattern. Uh, contrast that with, lead, with type 2 and type 3, where um, you, ha- you have a little bit less subtle abnormalities. Um, and you certainly don't have what you see in V2 and, and, and type 1 pattern. If you see this, um, you want to differentiate between Bugatta pattern and Bugatta syndrome. So, Bugatta pattern is just what you find in the ECG. Brugada syndrome is a Brugada ECG pattern and symptoms resulting from ventricular arrhythmias. So either sudden death, recurrent syncope, passing out, palpitations, or if there's a family history of sudden death. And and the reason why it's important is because patients, many patients have Brugada ECG pattern, and that alone is of questionable clinical significance. These patients are not more likely to die of uh, VT. But if you have a Brugada syndrome, you are more likely to die of ventricular tachycardia. Um, and so I mentioned some of the symptoms that you might have from ventricular tachycardia: syncope, um, sudden death will be <laughs> one one presentation of it. Um, but many of these patients it tends to happen more at nighttime when vagal tone increases, and so they'll, they'll they'll be noted to have nocturnal um, agonal respirations. Um, so for these patients, they they tend to have more things with increased vagal tone, like I mentioned earlier. Um, so if they're having nausea or vomiting or having, eating big meals, they're more likely to have arrhythmias. And the same thing, they also are more likely to have this arrhythmia with fever. Uh, for whatever reason, Fevers predisposes patients to arrhythmias. Um, or if they take a provoking medication, there's a long list of them, um, but they include some antiarrhythmic, psychotropics, propofol for whatever reason, alcohol and cocaine. Um, So for this patient, um, he had a Brugada type one pattern. So we told him to avoid large meals, avoid cocaine, alcohol, avoid provoking medication. But remember he had pneumonia um, and he was febrile from that. And so what happened was he developed this after he presented um, to the cardiac intensive care unit. In his case, he got shocked, got treated for this and then ended up getting a uh, uh, definitive treatment. Um, so this is the algorithm for treating Brugada syndrome in somebody who's um, uh, who's had symptoms. So on the right, if you've had cardiac arrest or sustained BT like him, he would need to get a defibrillator. Um, and if he has persistent symptoms, you would need to get quinidine or uh, or or catheter ablation. Um, if he didn't have, if he didn't have BT, then Um, You'd want to take a close history to figure out if it's had syncope that was judged to be caused by ventricular arrhythmia, because in those cases, you still want to put a defibrillator in, just to avoid sudden death. If neither one of those is positive, then you could consider an EP study. Um, But uh, in many of these patients, they're not candidates for defibrillator, and you just tell them to avoid provoking factors. All right, so we went over um, long QT syndrome and we went over Brigada syndrome. I, I want to also just have a few more slides. On um, when to consider a defibrillator placement in other patient populations. So this is a, a 65-year-old man. I basically came in with an STEMI. Um, he developed VFIb um, He was successfully treated for it. He got uh, stented, and he did fine. And so we often get questioned about, well, when is the candidate for defibrillator? Should he leave your ICU without a defibrillator? Um, so this is the algorithm for it. Um, uh, this is. Uh, for secondary prevention. So in other words, you're presented with ventricular fibrillation. So if the patient um, Has had an MI associated um, ventricular arrhythmia, they do not get a defibrillator. So let me just repeat that again. So if you've had um, a STEMI or NSTEMI or whatever, and you come in with V-fib to do that cause you, and, and the artery is open, then there's no more arrhythmias. If, um, then you do not need to get a defibrillator. If, However, if the patient comes in with no evidence of an UMI, or if they continue to have arrhythmias more than two days after presentation, then you would want to consider a defibrillator for um, preventing a sed- a secondary uh, arrhythmias. So let's go through this algorithm here. Um, uh, for, on the left-hand side is a sudden cardiac arrest survivor or somebody continues to have sustained monomorphic VT, and notice the asterisk at the end of it, this excludes reversible causes like an acute MI. You wanna first see if there's ischemia warranting revascularization. If you do that um, and you revascularize them and they're fine, then you might not need to think of a defibrillator, but if not, then you want to to, uh, uh, consider placing a defibrillator. Um, the same thing goes for patients who don't have definitive VT but coming with syncope If their EF is low, you want to put a defibrillator. If your EF, EF is higher than 35%, then you can consider an EP study. So just to summarize ischemic heart disease, um, bottom line is don't put it in within the first two days after an acute MI, but consider it in any patient who has um, uh, uh, arrhythmias after two days or in patients who could persistently have a decline in EF. Um, in this case, this is below 40%. Um, you could start thinking about a defibrillator once you pass about 90 days or so. What about in patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy? Um, those patients, um, if they've had an arrhythmia and they have proven non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, uh, then they should get a defibrillator as a class 1 indication, um, especially if they have low EFs. And here's the algorithm for it, but I think for the critical care audience, all, the only thing you should know is is that if you have a low EF and you have arrhythmias from it, you need a, a defibrillator. Even if you have no arrhythmias, you eventually need a defibrillator for non ischemic paranoia. So that's that. I did. I talked about a lot of stuff, but I want you to focus on the following things. Number one, I think using scan zoom criteria is a good way of like, like diagnosing VT. It doesn't, to my mind, it doesn't seem um, like I have to remember like you know, a lot of criteria except for how wide the RS and the QRS interval should be. Um, it just seems to be a good way of thinking about it. Um, once you determine if it's VT or not, you want to not forget to look and treat inciting cause of arrhythmias, um, especially stuff like torsades or AFib with WPW if it's irregular. Um, you want to be careful for long QT and Brigada syndromes because you don't want to miss those. And then, you know, once you stabilize the patient, ask for help. I mean, ask for help from the cardiology consult team or from the EP team um, because um aside from like a patient acutely crashing, you have time to think about what' to do for that patient um I hope this is helpful feel free to email me with any questions I'm happy to stay on 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 and answer any questions